Awesome. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. I was going to do 26 through chapter 2, verse 25, but decided to change it for reasons you will see shortly. All right, every action that we take in our lives, uh, it starts with a thought, okay? Before we do anything with our hands, something happens in our head. Every work of charity starts with compassion. Every courageous act starts with conviction. Every sin starts with temptation. What happens between our ears will determine what we do with our hands. Or maybe just to steal the title from Richard Weaver's 1948 book, Ideas Have Consequences. What we think about things will determine what we do with our lives. And this is just one of the reasons why it's important for us to think carefully about our beliefs. What happens up here in our head will eventually make its way to our hands. And at different times in the history of the church, different beliefs, or we might say different doctrines, have had center stage in what the church has been thinking about and focusing on. And that's for a good reason. Let me give you a few examples here. The early church, all the way back at the beginning, many people were trying to figure out the nature of Jesus. Who is this guy that we believe was both God, but also this king? He also was a, was a man. How does all of that go together? A lot of people put forward a lot of different theories. Some people believe that he was God and he only seemed to be a man. That was called docetism. Other people believe that he was a man, but he lived a really good life, and he was promoted to be a god. That's not true either. That's called adoptionism. There's all these different kinds of views. They were trying to figure out who is Jesus. And so the church fathers, they read the gospels. They, they searched the epistles. They met together in councils to discuss, to debate, and they concluded that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. This is how they wrote it in the Nicene Creed that he is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Thank God for the church fathers taking the time to work through Scripture, to pray it through it, and to discuss all of this together, to teach us this truth. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We stand upon that today. Moving forward to the late Middle ages, ages, many people were discussing and being discouraged by, you could say, some of the corruptions of the church at that time. And a small but growing group of people uh, started what we might call a protest, and they put forward certain beliefs. They said, no, truth is found in Scripture alone. We are saved not by works, but by grace alone. We access that grace through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And all of this has been done for the glory of God alone. These protesters, or we might call them protestants, they fought for the gospel. And thank God they did, because we stand upon that truth today. Zoom from forward another 400 years or so. We're in this post-enlightenment world, and many people were arguing that we're just a little bit too smart now to believe in these fairy tales. They went through the Bible with a knife, cutting out anything and explaining anything that seemed to be a little bit too supernatural to be believed. Things like the virgin birth, things like Jesus' miracles. But many people weren't having it, and they pushed back against that. 
And this group was led by men like B.B. Warfield in the late 19th century and the early 20th century who claimed that the Bible is God's word written and that the scripture says whatever it says, God says. And thank God they did because we stand upon this today. Ideas have consequences. Our beliefs matter. In the church today, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of a two-century-old family of people who are seeking to follow the one true God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so here's the question that we should be asking today. What's in the crosshairs now? We're pretty clear on who Jesus is. He's fully God and fully man. We're pretty clear on how salvation works by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're pretty clear that the Word of God is the Word of God. But what's the main thing that the church is wrestling over and struggling over to make sense of today? Well, on Tuesday morning, I woke up, I went to work, I sat down to start working on my sermon. The passage was already selected for me. But uh, before I started, I opened up the Gospel Coalition website. I wanted to see what the articles were. I always like to get on there and see what the top five articles are for the day. And here are just three of the five articles, featured articles at the top of the website. Just one website, five of the top articles. Here are three. Number one, What Does God Intend for My Body? by Harold Sinkbeel. The second was a podcast. It was called Benjamin Watson on the Sanctity of Life. The third article was by a writer named Trevin Wax, somebody I've always found to be really insightful and uh, really articulate. And this is the title of his article. Today's Defining Question, What is a Human? I I can't help but agree with Trevin Wax. In fact, when I look at these three articles at the top of just one random website on a Tuesday morning, it proves Trevin Wax's point. That today's defining question is, what is a human? What makes a human a human? This is an important question for us to wrestle through today. I would argue that it is the topic, it is the doctrine, it's the belief in the crosshairs that we as Christians today have to be thinking about carefully because this idea has important consequences. Does human, human life have more dignity than the life of a cat? Or the life of a cow? Does human life become worthy of dignity before birth or, or after birth? Does human life lose its worth, lose its dignity at some point? Maybe after it's exhausted its usefulness in this world. Where do we look to find our identity? Do we look within? Do we look in the mirror? Do we look up? To what extent can we seek to transcend our natural human limitations before we stop being human? So, for instance, the transhumanism movement. Can we upload our consciousness to a computer? Like, are we still human at that point? All of these questions and more are right at the center of the things that our world right now is trying to figure out. And so it's a question that we as a church have to take seriously. What is a human? And thankfully, right here in Genesis 1, through 2, this is the most important passage in all of Scripture to help us find an answer to that question. As we look at these verses, what we're going to see is it 
we can break it up into three ideas. Design, dominion, and distinction. Design, dominion, and distinction. Design. God designed us intentionally in his image. What does that mean? Why does it matter? Number two, dominion. God gave us a job to do around here. What is it? Number three, distinction. God made man and women different. Why? I mean, is that not a pretty good definition of the things our world is struggling with right now? And so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about design and distinction. Design and distinction. Our identity as image bearers and why our distinction into men and women is a necessary part of that. And then next week, we're going to talk about dominion and distinction. Our job on this planet and why our distinction as men and women is a necessary part of that. And because of that, we're only focusing on verses 26 and 28 today. I don't have slides. I would love to blame someone else. It's my fault. So have your Bibles open in front of you. No flipping necessary. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let me pray for us right here again as we, as we get moving. Heavenly Father, this is so important, and we know it's important. So much of what we wrestle with when we, when we think about life in this world, when we think about what we see on the news, comes down ultimately to this question. What does it mean to be a human? So much of it. And Father, we know that ideas matter, that ideas have consequences. We want to have right ideas about humanity so that we can live rightly as humans and so that we can urge others to live rightly as humans as well. We need your help today. I know I do. So be close and give clarity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So imagine you're on vacation, and uh, you fly into Manchester Airport coming home from vacation. You drive up 28. You come up to the Alton Rotary, and right there, right in the middle of the Rotary, is a 15-foot bronze statue of a man, and he is holding a compass, and he is pointing north. You think, all right, wouldn't have spent my tax dollars like that, but here it is. You go around town, you ask people, hey, uh, what's with the statue? Who is that guy? And everybody says, I don't know. I have no idea. Why, why is he pointing north? Got me. <laughs> so you're going around town, you're asking people this question, what's the deal with the statue? Who is it? Why is he pointing north? And eventually, after you're striking out, nobody seems to know, you decide, you know what? I'm going to go to town hall and ask. So you go to town hall, you find the person who is over the statue committee, and you say, hey, who, who, who's the guy in the statue? And they go, I don't know. Uh, we just thought a big bronze guy would look good there. Okay. Uh, why is he pointing north? Why is he holding a compass? I, I, don't, I don't know. Should he be pointing west? That wouldn't happen. Statues, images, they have a purpose. They have a reason. People don't put up statues just because they like the way statues look. No, they raise up images because images image something. Images represent something else. They direct our attention beyond that thing to the thing that's being imaged. Statues aren't raised for nobody. And statues aren't doing what they're doing when you look at them 
for no reason. And so you go down to Boston. You find a big bronze statue, maybe, of, of Paul Revere. You're not meant to look at that statue of Paul Revere and say, wow, isn't bronze amazing? That's, that's not the point of that bronze statue. You're supposed to look at that statue and say, wow, thank goodness. Thank God that he had Paul Revere do what Paul Revere did. Thank you, Lord, for Paul Revere and his amazing work in the American Revolution. Paul Revere, that image, images something else. Paul Revere, it was, if, if you were to look at that statue, he probably wasn't just going to be standing like this. He'd probably have maybe a hand to his mouth and be pointing, saying, like, the British are coming, right? He'd be shaped in a certain way in order to communicate something about the man being imaged. So statues, images, they don't only image someone, they show something about the one being imaged. Does that make sense? I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> so when God made uh, plants, when he made trees, when he made rocks, going through all of creation, actually, I'm sorry, not rocks, in the, in the, in the, in the text, when he made plants and trees, fish, birds, and beasts, after every single thing he made, we read these words, that he made them according to its kind. Ten times in chapter one, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, until you get to humanity, we hear something different about humanity. He breaks the rhythm when you get to humanity. He says something different. This is what he says, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see design, dominion, and distinction there? Design. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. Design. Dominion and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over every, uh, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's dominion <clears throat> and distinction. He created them in his image, male and female. He created them. All three ideas packed in these two verses, very important verses. We're just going to focus today on design and distinction. And as I said before, next week we're going to talk about dominion and distinction. Because if you're a human, what that means is that you bear God's image, period. All right? Full stop. No exceptions. Last week, what we saw is that God alone is in the creator bucket. Humans and everything else are in the created bucket. That really helps make sense of the universe for us. But this text is saying something else. What it's telling us is that everything in that created bucket, of everything in that, we alone have a unique honor. Human beings, of everything else he made, has a unique honor. We bear the image of God. Nothing else has that image. Nothing else has that dignity. Nothing else has that honor. And what this passage makes clear to us is that whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, you bear God's image equally. God could have talked about any description 
of us. He chose to focus in on man and woman. Men, you are able to uniquely display the image of God by your masculinity. Women, you are able to uniquely display the image of God by your femininity. And I'm not injecting into that our cultural descriptions of what that looks like. I'm not talking about exactly what femininity and and masculinity looks like. What I am trying to point out here is that the distinction between men and women is a distinction that God created before the fall. This is not in Genesis 4 that we're reading about men and women. This is Genesis 2. In fact, it's really important to notice the distinction is there, and then after he talks about that, he calls it very good. Men and women were both created in the image of God, Men and women were both created by design the way he wanted them. And then he said, that's what I wanted. That is good. As we live out our masculinity and femininity in holy ways, we display the image of God. We display the imago Dei, as we might say. Now, we can say a lot, obviously, about what it means to be made in the image of God, but we have to start right here. As image bearers, our primary job in this world is to image God. That's our mission. That's the purpose he's put us here for. Like that statue points people's attention beyond itself to Paul Revere, so also we as humans point beyond ourselves to the one we image. I'm really helped by the Westminster Shorter Catechism, or um, I think it is. Anyway, question one, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose in life? The answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That fits in perfectly with what we're seeing here, with the fact that we bear God's image. After all, we've been talking about this all the way through our John series, and then last week as well, that to glorify God is to put him on display. To glorify God is to show what God is like. And so it really shouldn't be a surprise to us that when we're made in the image of God, we as image bearers are called to be holy as he is holy. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read that this is the will of God, your sanctification. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that we as image bearers are called to be like God, holy as he is holy, forgive as you've been forgiven, love as you have been loved, be like God. Because God made mankind with a mission, and that mission is to show what he is like. We're going to get a lot more into that next week, but suffice it to say here, that's why we read in the next verse, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants us to fill the earth with his image. That wherever you are on this planet, wherever you see a human, you are seeing a statue pointing to God. So that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. And of course, you know, in a few weeks, what we're going to see is that sin gets in the way of that. Sin gets in the way of humans actually living out that purpose. It, it mars the image of God in us. We look less like God the more we sin. We look less like our holy God the less holy we become. 
But we'll also see in a few weeks there that God has a plan to fix that problem. How did he do that? Well, he sent a man without sin. A man who alone, therefore, perfectly imaged God in this world. After all, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus alone fulfilled the purpose for which man was made. As the message of the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth, what we're doing is we are being fruitful and multiplying. Restoring people, restoring the image of God in people as their sins are washed away. Until all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And again, more on that next week. But what about today? The world is full of people trying to figure out their purpose, trying to figure out the reason why they were put on this planet in the first place. And the thing is, when our culture tries to answer that question, who am I? What's, what's my purpose? Why was I put here? What they'll tend to do is want to look inside. They'll look inside and ask, who am I? And then they'll seek to be true to that. But if we want to know our purpose on the earth, the question really can't be, who am I? The question has, can't, should rather be, whose am I? Rather than looking inside and asking, what do I find? We should look up and ask, what do we find? If we want to know what we were made for, the best way to find an answer is by seeing the answer given by the one who made you in the first place. Humans, you have been made in the image of God. You have been made to image God. And even as we talk about what these images do next week, this week, I just want to talk about the question of why it matters. Why does it matter today for you that you have been made in the image of God? Our beliefs shape our actions. We saw that. How does this belief shape your actions as you live in this world today? This is a, a quote by Louis Burkhoff. He was a, he was a theologian about a, a couple generations ago, and he says this, According to Scripture, the essence of man consists in this, that he is the image of God. As such, he is distinguished from all other creatures and stands supreme as the head and the crown of the entire creation. So, if every other thing is created according to its kind, we might say that we, Christian, human, human, have been made according to God's kind. We have been made like him. And what that does is it gives human inherent dignity. Our lives, they have value, they have dignity, they have worth. And this isn't just true before the fall, before sin came into the world. This is, this is true now. Genesis 9, 6, it says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall blood be shed. For God made man in his image. Why is murder a big deal? Well, Murder is a big deal because that person being murdered bears the image of God. That's why it has value. That's why it has dignity. That's why it has worth. Zooming forward to James 3, 9. James writes that with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Why speak honorably about people? 
Why not slander, gossip, and curse? Well, because that person bears the image of God. Every human being bears God's image, and therefore every human being has inherent dignity, inherent value, inherent worth. I have value. I have worth. I have dignity. It's not because I've done good deeds. I haven't earned it. My value is not based on what I've achieved through education or my contribution to society. My value is not based, actually, even, in the fact that my family loves me. My value is not based on the fact that I have built up my self-esteem with positive self-talk. Where do I get my value? Where do I get my worth? Where do I get my dignity? The answer is I got it from my daddy. It's hereditary. God printed his image onto Adam and Eve, and Genesis 5-3 tells us that when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What that means, Adam has been given the image of God. Eve has been given the image of God. And with every human ever born, the image has been passed along. You have dignity. You have value. You have worth. Not because you've done anything, achieved anything to earn it. It's yours by birth. It was in your Father's will. And the other implication of that is that you cannot lose that. Your value, your dignity, your worth is no more lost than it is gained. When you do bad deeds, when you fail to achieve your goals, you do not lose human dignity. And so as image bearers, we deserve to be treated with value, with dignity, with honor. I'm going to give three implications of that for living in the world right now. And here's the first one. Number one, life should be defended. We should defend the life of the young. We should defend the life of the old. We should defend the life of he or she who is mentally deficient. We should defend the life of him or her whose brain has not yet developed. We should defend the life of that person, whether it's a male or a female, whether they're black or white, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're born or unborn. No matter who, if you are a human, your life matters. In fact, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that as we look back through the history of the church, it's been the church at the forefront of medicine. It's been the church at the forefront of much of the things that we might call justice issues today. It was the church at the front of ending slavery. It shouldn't surprise us that the church of all people on the planet value human life and defend it. Lives should be defended because image bearers deserve to be treated with dignity. As we look around the world today, wherever we see the life of a human being challenged, we as Christians should speak up and say, that life matters. It doesn't matter if they've done bad things or good things. What they look like, if they're a human, they deserve dignity. They, their life deserves to be defended. So that's number one. 
Life should be defended. Number two, image bearers should be treated with honor. Now, this one's a little bit less black and white. Or, I'm sorry, it's a little bit less black and white to know how to live it out. That's what I'm, I'm saying. That our job is not just to protect life, but it should also affect the way that we treat the lives of those around us. Not only should we fight against the death of people, we should fight for the people who are still living. I think that very often when we look at uh, the pro-life movement, one of the insults that's hurled against uh, those who are pro-life is this claim, you guys only care about life before birth, but then you don't care about the life of the mother. Have you ever heard that? Um, the funny thing is, that's, just look around, it's 100% not the way it works. When we look around in the world, what we see is that the pro-life movement has been at the forefront of caring for the single mother. The pro-life movement is the one who's been starting pregnancy help centers, trying to make a way both to protect life and to care for the life of the mothers whose life has honor, worth, and dignity. We care for the life of the baby. We care for the life of the mother. We do both because all life has dignity. We must. If we forget one at the, for the sake of the other, we're not being consistent with our ethic. If we protect the mother and forget the child, or we, forget, or we protect the child and forget the mother, we're not being consistent. We're not treating these image bearers as image bearers. And thankfully, Christians are doing this well. Pregnancy help centers. I've seen Christian after Christian step into the foster care system to say the lives of these kids matter. The lives of these kids need to be protected and treated with honor. Or even, as I said before, historically, hospitals, slavery, the works of God's people has been the greatest source of dignity for humanity in our history, I would argue. In fact, very many, uh, very recently, many people are coming to realize that human worth, human dignity, that our culture has, finds its roots in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's the fact that this has become in the air that we believe that humans have dignity. In fact, if you take away our, uh, the Christian faith and, and Jewish faith, and you look at um, every other source of truth that the world may look at, it's really hard to defend the idea that human life has dignity. But because we believe that God made man, all man, every man, every woman, every child, in the image of God, Every human being has dignity. And we as Christians should be the most consistent to live out that ethic and to give that honor to all. One more implication, and I will say, this is probably the hardest implication for us to actually live out. This might be the one that we find the most convicting. Image bearers should be spoken of with honor. Image bearers should be spoken of with honor. That person who's hurt you is human. That person who hurt you bears the image of God. They, they might have taken you out at the knees at your workplace. They might have insulted your family. But they're human. They bear the image of God. And if we take James seriously and in James chapter 3, as, as I wrote a, uh, read a moment ago, 
With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. If that's true, then human beings, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, they still deserve to be spoken of respectfully, spoken of with honor, treated with dignity, even from afar. And now, obviously that means we can't curse them, we can't rip them apart from our, with our words, but sometimes we forget that that includes people who we don't personally know. When is the last time you've ripped someone apart who's a politician with your words? What about slander? Saying things that aren't true or gossip, sharing negative things about someone in order to ruin their reputation? This is the hard one because people hurt us. And it's hard to know who to share what with. It's not true that we should keep everything to ourselves. Yes, we should report crimes. Yes, we should do something when abuse happens. Yes, we should seek the care of the people we love. But when we speak with cursing, slander, and gossip towards someone else merely to tear them apart and tear them down, what we're doing is defacing the image of God in them. We need to bear God's image and treat everyone who has God's image with value and with worth and with dignity. No matter what they've done, no matter whether we know them personally, no matter whether news of what we've said will get around to them or not. The challenging thing for us Christians is to have a consistent ethic of the dignity of human life here. It's easy for us to say, we are anti-abortion. Awesome. Great. But are we going to treat the mothers with the same dignity we are asking for the children? Are we going to speak for the politicians making those laws with the same honor that we hope others would treat us with? A consistent ethic of human dignity means that we treat humans and view humans, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, with the love and the grace and the dignity that God has given to us. Why? Because when we look at them, what we're seeing shine through them is the glory of God. Our love for God, our respect for God, the worth of God, has been inherited by every single human person on this planet. Our job is to treat them accordingly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for this. This is is hard. Because humans are messy. (laughs) It's hard for us to have a consistent valuing and, and, and dignifying of humans when People make it hard uh, to love them sometimes. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us glorify you by by, by dignifying the people who are around us. That you would draw us uh, ever nearer to you, Lord. Help us live ever more in light of the sinlessness that we have by faith in in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Heavenly Father, we we thank you for that hope. We thank you for the fact that, yes, we bore your image, bear your image, and yes, by faith in Jesus Christ, that image in us has been restored, that it's been, it's been, it's been, uh, the, the marring of it has been removed. May we live in such a way that we show the image to the world. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand and worship once more.